Now guys, um, if you're new around here, may I say to you that we're, I announced this series probably 18 months ago. It's called a series on great chapters. And what I do or try to do is do something from the New Testament and then something from the Old and something from the Old and something in the New and just and alternate back and forth from those, um, from those positions. I do this every week. Yes, dear. <laughs> I forget my glasses. Um, all right, we're going to read from the second, uh, from Second Corinthians chapter five. We'll read the first ten verses of uh, that chapter. So you follow as I read from here. It reads like this: For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is considered to be quite a biggie. And it's considered to be a biggie because of basically what is stated in verse 21, which we'll get to there, uh, Lord willing, in the sweet by and by. But um, that's not the only reason that 2 Corinthians 5 is a biggie. There's a lot of stuff in here. But this morning, this, for this morning's text, guys, if you will listen up, this text is going to give us some information that we really want, some information that we really value because it is information about death. It's information about <clears throat> eternity. And because we so fear death, we value any information that you can give us concerning it. You know, guys, there is a, there is a statement that is made in the book of Hebrews. It's in the second chapter and it's describing Jesus's work and it says though death through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver listen to this and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery the fear of death has the potential to produce <clears throat> a lifelong slavery that's what it says here. And I wonder if any of us are still in that 
slavery. Um, so you see, we value anything, any information that will help us deal with that. And by the way, if you say you don't fear death, you would probably lie about other things too. But um, um, so that's what we're going to do with this passage. Take a look at it uh, to try and garner some information that will help us. The first thing that we have to do is define the terms. Gang, Paul is using here in this, these two paragraphs several figures of speech. And we've got to figure out how it is that he's using them, which will help us as we work through the passage. For example, uh, in verse 1, for we know that if the tent, there's one, the tent, what in the world does he have in mind when he says the tent? Well, that was easy because he makes it pretty clear, which is our earthly home is destroyed. <clears throat> when he uses this term tent, and he uses it a couple of times um, in verses 1, verses 2, um, he's talking about the earthly body that will die, this body, in this life. That's what he has in mind when he uses the term tent. That was pretty easy. The other one, he goes on in verse one and talks about, um, we have a building from God, a house, uh, an eternal dwelling. And that one's pretty easy as well. He even talks later on in verse four about being further clothed, which I think is um, helpful. But this building, this house, this uh, heavenly dwelling, that is this eternal state in the presence of Christ where we get that resurrected body and we'll live eternally. Okay, that one's pretty easy as well. The other one is rather iffy. When he talks about naked and being further clothed and being unclothed, that one's harder. But I think I'm on pretty solid footing to suggest to you that what Paul has in mind when he's talking about that is this intermediate state of disembodied spirits where my spirit is with Christ, alive and conscious, but not having it yet joined to my resurrected body. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's what Christians who are in heaven now are experiencing, this intermediate state. Got it? Okay, so if you will pause right there, we have already been given some information that will help. For you will notice that there are, in the mind of Paul, three states, not four. This idea of purgatory, I don't see it mentioned in there. How about that? You know what purgatory is? It's that place where we're roasted alive for thousands of years to purge away our sin. Well, I thought Jesus did that. That whole notion of purgatory, where it came from, it didn't come from here, it didn't come from the rest of this book. And Paul never mentions it. And it should never trouble us. But he does mention these three states, folks. Here they are. Here's the, the three states. Number one, here, in the body, in the tent, there, um, in uh, this disembodied state and then later in an eternal combination of spirit and resurrected body. 
Now that's helpful information, just that. But this text includes a whole lot, a whole lot of, a whole lot more stuff, which we don't have time to look at. First of all, this, uh, this idea of the spirit is a guarantee. I'd love to spend some time on that. We're not going to be able to. This notion of we walk by faith, not by sight. That's something that we ought to look into. Um, and, but one of the things that really intrigues me is the way that Paul presents his whole lesson here. Did you notice how he started? Uh, for we know. He mentions that in verse 6. We know. He's not guessing, at least in the mind of Paul, he's not guessing. He talks about having good courage. He mentions that a couple of times. Um, He is presenting things to you in which he has supreme confidence. You know, um, a couple of three times a year, I have people uh, come to me and say, Uh, Well, you know, I work with a guy down at the office, and uh, he's really smart, very smart, very smart boy. I mean, he reads all kinds of books. He's just really, really smart. And uh, and he calls himself an agnostic. Now, folks, do you know what the word agnostic means? The, The root of the word is gnostic, which comes from a Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And then you put a little A in the front, which is a negative particle. It means no knowledge. So your agnostic friend is glorying in the fact that he's an ignoramus. I don't have any knowledge. Well, that's not the way that Paul addresses or or treats this subject. He starts with saying, we know, we know, we have great courage. He is confident in what he's telling you. Now guys, there's all kinds of that stuff in here that I would, but we just don't have time to treat it. There are... Three things to which I want to draw your attention. But let me tell you why I chose these three things. Because I'm hoping all three of them will help us get over that fear of death which can lead to lifelong slavery. My whole intention this morning, ladies and gentlemen, is pastoral. I know we struggle with this. And so what I'm hoping is that these three little things that I want to show you in this passage will help reduce that or maybe even eliminate it. Okay? So here we go. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Did you notice the groan? Paul mentions it twice um, in the text. He mentions it in verse 2 and verse 4. I'll tell you what it is in just a second. But first of all, folks, Paul groans because he has certain information at his disposal things in which he is confident. But if you are not, if you do not share Paul's confidence, then you're never gonna understand his groan. You see, um, Paul is groaning for that resurrected body that I mentioned a moment ago. He groans for that because he's confident he's gonna have it. But if you're not as confident if you're not really in possession of the same kind of information, then you will never understand his groan. Um, You'll never be able to relate to the Apostle Paul groaning because he is groaning over something that we don't understand. 
Gang, Paul, while in this tent, longs for the other one. And the thing that keeps him from that one is the tent. This one. So he is describing a certain homesickness. I groan for the one that awaits me. Gang, I would suggest to you that it's that groan that the 21st century evangelical doesn't know much about. We, we don't understand the groan because we don't have the confidence that Paul has, number one. But we also don't understand the groan because we have become way too attached to this life. Oh, we have a groan, all right, but it's not Paul's groan. We have a groan to make sure that we live longer. Um, Paul doesn't see it that way. And because our groan is not his groan, our groan contributes to fear. Not Paul's. Not, not what he's saying. This is not a man that is bound up in some kind of lifelong slavery. That's just us. Because we don't have a groan like Paul. And our groanlessness is very telling. It says a lot about our attachments. We groan for more of this life, but that's not what you find here. And Paul's longing is fueled by his confidence. In verse 1, if this earthly home is destroyed, there's another one that awaits me. Guys, we are not home. He mentions that word four times in these two paragraphs. He mentions the word house once, but in the, in the mind of Paul, we are not home in this body in the permanent sense. It's only a, an earthly temporary home. There's a better one that awaits me. And this one will get replaced. Gang, just with those thoughts in mind, go back with me and let me read you verse one. Just verse one again. Verse one. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Guys, do you see that knowing that, how it would affect that lifelong slavery of fear? 
Gang, <clears throat> this is Paul and, and the Bible's view of death. Right there in verse 1. The real me is safe. And isn't it interesting, don't you think, that Paul says he can be disembodied and still be me. He's not a body with a soul. He's a soul with a body. And the body can be discarded and I'll still be there. Death will pull down this tent, this, this temporary domicile, and it will get replaced by something permanent. That's it. Do you see that? If we shared his confidence, we would not be slaves to fear. And for Paul, he longed for that. If this tent is destroyed, another one will take its place. I'll never be homeless. Why? Because God had another building that he has for me, says Paul. He has another one for you too. For Paul to die was sheer gain. And he groans for that time. We don't. And we don't because we don't share his confidence. And we end up instead, in the place of confidence, we end up with fear. So the real cause of our lifelong slavery is our own unbelief. <clears throat> now here's the second thing that I wanted to point out in the text. It's in verse 9. And, and I want you to see the fondest desire of saving faith in verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Whether I'm here or there, Matters not. What I really want is to please him. Now, gang, while, while you dig around in your soul just a little bit, let me encourage you to take verse 9 down there with you, Count, using it as a searchlight, and see what you can find down there. <clears throat> because if all you find is some love of sin, then that's the opposite of verse 9, and you are a stranger to saving faith because saving faith has this desire that whether I'm here or there, wherever I am, I want him to be pleased. Using that verse nine as kind of a searchlight of your soul, do you see it down there? Anywhere? Do you see verse nine down there anywhere? Because ladies and gentlemen, it's gotta be down there somewhere. That is, if you're a part of the family of God, that verse nine's gotta be down there somewhere. <clears throat> now, one other piece of information. Paul's lesson on this subject is not 
complete until he has added verse 10. Let me read verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Guys, do you realize that verse 10 gets a whole lot of ink? Did you know that? Um, it's because of this notion of the judgment seat of Christ. Boy, people got lots of stuff they want to say about this. Let me, let me try to sum it up for you. Um, here's, here's what Paul is saying in verse 10. Paul's view of the future influences his behavior in the present. What I think about there influences how I live here. Gang, there is so much written about the judgment seat of Christ and that that's different from the, the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20 and this is a Greek word, bema, and I've heard people wax eloquent about the bema and on and on and on it goes. Well, folks, if you will permit me, let me try and simplify the whole idea for you or that whole discussion at least, and I can do it in five words. What we're being taught here is that we are accountable to God. <clears throat> forget all the bemas, forget all the, the uh, comparing of the thrones of judgment, forget that for the moment, and just understand that we are accountable to God. You are accountable to God. I am accountable to God. And that thing is the most hated concept in all of Christianity to the non-Christian world. Accountability is their least favorite word. They don't want to be accountable. Except, except maybe for themselves. The idea of a judge before whom I will stand. But ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake. However you understand all this in here in verse 10, We're all going to stand before God, accountable to him. Verse 10 simply underscores the principle that I said a moment ago that the way I live here is influenced by what I think of there, knowing that the way I live here has eternal consequences. And what are those consequences? Listen carefully. My living here does nothing more than provide demonstrative evidence of my real nature. My living here is not the basis for my salvation, but it is public evidence. It's a demonstration of the genuineness of the faith that I claim to have or the absence of the faith. You know, folks, <clears throat> I hope this doesn't come as a surprise. Jesus has been saying it since the Sermon on the Mount. He said it very simply, by their fruits, you shall know them. So ladies and gentlemen, do not kid yourself. 
If there's no verse 9 in your soul, and there's no sense of my living now is accountable to God, stop kidding yourself. You're not a part of this. <clears throat> now let me wrap it up. Guys, when, before the pandemic, when Susie and I used to travel a, a fair amount, at least stateside, we almost 100% of the time when we were out of town, we, we would stay in the embassy suites. <clears throat> we liked the embassy suites. We liked the configuration of the rooms. I mean, she could stay up late. I could go to bed. I could get up early. She could sleep late. You know, we, we liked the configuration of the rooms and we liked the, uh, you know, the made to order breakfasts. And um, um, most of the time uh, I would be bringing breakfast up so that my wife could eat it in bed. Um, and then um, we liked the, the manager's reception at night. And we just liked the embassy suites. That's, that's where we felt most comfortable. But, but invariably, after staying there for a week, we couldn't wait to get back to our real home. As good as those hotels are, they couldn't compare with our permanent home. Folks, this life is hotel living. It's nice, but it's not home. Folks, to know that when you die, that all is well, how valuable is that information? To know that when I die, the only thing I have to do is die. That's the best help I know of. It's the best information I can give you for trying to lessen that fear. The worst prospect we face is death. But because of Jesus Christ, we're ready for that. Death gets transformed. It ceases to be a tool that the devil can use to enslave us. But you see, thinking like that does not come naturally, does it? It's, it's not the way that most think. Why is it that we think like that? Well, look at verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. What very thing? Well, this tent being destroyed. Who prepared us for that? The one who prepared us for this very thing is God. God has done something in us, ladies and gentlemen, to prepare us, to rid us of this fear of death which can produce this lifetime of slavery. So he's given us information whereby he prepares us to live by assuring us that once this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That once this tent is destroyed, it's going to be replaced. 
by something eternal. So my brother and sister in Christ, go leave it all on the field. Grace has done it all. Now go live like that. Dear ones, if Christ is alive, which we believe he is, he will never rest until he has the ones for whom he died with him. And then we will experience a deep at-homeness. Home sweet home. But folks, all of the good news contained in these paragraphs belongs only to people who are looking to Jesus Christ alone to save them. If you are not, if you are outside of Christ, then you are left with your questions, you are left with your fear, you are left with your sin, you are left with your doom. It is my privilege to invite you to Jesus Christ. Our Father, would you use this passage as, along with all others to show forth the beauty and excellencies of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on Calvary's cross? Would you show us again, O oh God, that what he did has made our eternities safe, that what he accomplished is that which will grant us and give to us an eternity of, of felicity and bliss because we can stand in your presence forgiven. Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, would you show them that all they've got is questions and fear and sin and doom? Draw them by your Spirit savingly to Christ. Do that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Hey guys, the